After the Second World War, race research moved out of biology and into the social sciences. So it became a social phenomenon, not a biological or genetic one. You know, this is about the study of racism and discrimination, the way race plays out in our everyday lives, not about how race plays out inside our bodies. But that wasn't the end of the story 70 years ago. First of all, not all scientists were on board with this global consensus. So even though we all, as the public, the global public, bought into this idea that we are all one human species and we're all united in that, some didn't agree with that. And very prominent scientists included there at Oxford, Cambridge, at leading universities throughout the world. Not many of them, but there were some. But part of the reason also that this didn't spell the end of race science was that it was already too late. Race had been made real, not by genetics, but by society and politics. We used these racial terms, we still do, in our everyday life, in the way we define ourselves, in our relationships with each other, in the racism and discrimination that we face in everyday life, in the bias. So it's there, it's embedded into us now, even if it was never there genetically. So how can we expect scientists to completely leave behind, at a stroke, which is what we tried to do after the Second World War, an idea that they had nurtured for hundreds of years, ideas that we still live with now in the 21st century? My argument is that we can't, and that's why we still see race invoked by scientists, even when it's not supposed to be. When we see, as we did, the famous geneticist James Watson, this is him, who shared a Nobel Prize in 1962 for recognizing the structure of DNA, make repeated assertions about black people not being the intellectual equals of white people, of Indians being naturally servile, of Chinese people being genetically conformist, of Jewish people being bred for intelligence. These are all claims that he has made. He isn't speaking in a vacuum. He's speaking as a scientist who, now that he's in his 90s, a scientist who, when he was born, this is perfectly acceptable. For a good chunk of his life, it was perfectly okay to think these things and say these things. We have to remember, again, science does not operate in a vacuum. It works with the assumptions and ideas that are available at the time. And if these happen to be racist ideas, and society is still racist, then we will always resort to them, however hard we try. Hi, it's Anna D here. I'm founder and curator of InspireFest. Welcome to Real Humans. This year, we wanted to do something a little unexpected. So we set up a booth backstage at InspireFest. All we had in that booth was a microphone and a series of cards that could be turned over to reveal a question. After they gave their talk and left the main stage, our speakers went into the booth, chose questions at random, and they ended up sharing lots of interesting stories and ideas with us. We wanted to create something that would give you a better idea of the human side of our speakers rather than just the technology, science and innovations that they talk about on stage. So we really hope you enjoy the results. It was something very new for us and a place that is not afraid to try new things is the Digital Hub, our supporters for the podcast series. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City in Ireland. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. You can visit thedigitalhub.com to find out more. Now let's run this experiment.
So the cards are there with your questions on them, microphones running, and I'm going to leave you to it. Tell me who you are and what you do. Um, so my name's Angela Saini. I'm a science journalist based in London. And uh, I am a broadcaster. I make radio and television programs on science. I write features. Um, but most of my time I spend writing books. And my new book... Um, Superior, The Return of Race Science is out very soon, looking at uh, the kind of historic legacy of scientific racism and the ways in which, um, because of the politics of the time that we're in, race science is kind of creeping back in, onto the agenda and also how mainstream science has proven, to some extent, unable to cope with it um, because it itself hasn't really confronted the legacy of scientific racism in its past. Why do you do what you do? Um, well, I do what I do. I am a science journalist and I think I do it, I went into journalism partly because of politics. I got involved in student politics when I was at university like so many people do. And that's how I started writing for the student press. Um, and I guess uh, I am a journalist because I feel it's so important for us to have um, the truth about the world, to have facts, um, scientific facts in my case, but also to speak truth to power, to be able to hold people to account. And by that, I don't just mean politicians and funding agencies, but also scientists themselves, because science, um, as we know, is not perfect. And there are people with agendas, um, with careers, with other motivations for why they say and do the things they do and I guess my job is to dissect that and investigate it. Next card says, uh, what do you wish you'd known when you were starting out? Mm. Oh. I think in the kind of industry I'm in, in the media, you only really learn by experience and I think if people had told me, if I'd gone back in time and told myself all the things that would lay in store, perhaps I wouldn't ever have become a journalist at all. <laughs> so I think sometimes it's better just to learn by experience and that includes making mistakes. Um, so if I would have said anything to myself, if I could go back, it would be to not be afraid of making mistakes. But then I don't think I have been. Okay, now I'm gonna answer some other questions. I will pick this one. This says, tell me about a time you experienced or witnessed an injustice and what influence that had on you. Well, in my case, I grew up in a very racist area of southeast London, um, a kind of working class, lower middle class area, which was very white. It is an emergency situation where emergency action has to be taken. And when we talk about moving such families out, of their flats, it has to be done literally within 24 hours. Asians have also found themselves in danger on their way to and from work. Attacks on Asians have been common. This Asian shopkeeper, who spent three years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp after fighting for Britain in the last war, describes the attack. It's happened in you know, exactly two o'clock. 
They are running down the street about approximately about 150 or 200 like this years, you know, all these skinheads. They are swearing, shouting and throw these stones, break my all windows. Because of these mounting attacks, the policing of Brick Lane has come under criticism from MPs, trade union leaders, as well as... When we used to go down the Lyceum and that, if um, a group of whites went to go in, they got in, but if a group of blacks went to go in, they weren't allowed in, they had to be with whites and that. If they split up and went in with a couple of white people, they'd get in. It's stupid, isn't it? You know, I can remember one night I was down Leicester Square, just come from a disco, and six of us, all was black, and part, walked past the pub, and it's about what, 20 guys, you know? I would say blokes, man, big blokes. Just what by shout at nigga. So I started walking, right, and I got lashed in my head. So then everyone, then I started to run after that. But I couldn't fight 20 guys by myself. And they caught one of them and started kicking him in, didn't they? Then the policeman comes along and he starts talking. He goes, oh, you shouldn't have started no trouble. As if six of us are gonna start against 20 blokes, you know? If someone leaves in here, say, bad situation, right, in a dirty house, the white people said, oh, look at these dirty, stupid black people, how they are living. If you buy, if we buy a new flat, fence that live nice, oh, they said, oh, they have taken our house over. <laughs> if we don't work, if we go to social security, they said, oh, look at them, they are drawing all the money from the social security, they should work, they shouldn't live like a stupid tramps in the streets. When we, when we get a job, they said, oh, they're taking our job. So, I mean, what can, can we do? We should have a choice. We should have a choice, you yeah. It's true. So, my family were some of the few ethnic minorities that we even saw on the streets. You didn't really tend to see any people of colour. Um, and when I was at school, um, I was always reminded of the colour that I was, of uh, being different. I always, you know, it was kind of the backdrop to my teenage years. Um, but I think one of the worst things that happened to me, and I know people have experienced much worse racism, including my husband, who was who grew up in South Wales. But um, when I was 10, and we'd only just moved to the area that in here in South East London from a very multicultural area. So for the first time, I was experienced experiencing racism and there were some boys from my school who started throwing rocks at me and my sister and one of them hit my head and I started bleeding and it was I just felt so kind of helpless I didn't really know what to do um, and that I think precipitated a lot of the work that came later so one of the reasons I write about race one of the first pieces of work I ever wrote, the first essay I ever wrote and read out at school was about that experience. Okay, I'll do one more. Uh, let's have a look. Um, who is your personal hero and why? I tend not to have heroes just because very often you get disappointed because nobody's perfect. <laughs> nobody's perfect. Um, so I'm quite cautious about that and especially people have told me when they've met the people that they lionise they always tend to turn out not to be exactly what they expected but I suppose if I were to pick one person whose work has had a kind of ongoing inspirational effect on my life it's um, the singer Nina Simone whose songs are kind of my favourite go-to songs even now. I still listen to her music all the time. She's just such a powerful, inspirational artist and, um, and her work has just been, I know for millions of other people, has just been such an important uh, 
support and guidance for me through the years. Um, and she herself, when she was younger, was what I remember reading once. She wanted to be a classical musician, but she wasn't allowed to because she was black. And so that's why she went into um, singing and jazz. It touched me first time when I gave a concert, uh, a recital at age 12, and they wanted to put my mom and daddy on the back row in the concert, uh, in the little recital hall. And I remember standing up quite bravely and said, oh no, my mom and dad will sit on the front row. That was first. And the second one came was when I went to, to Curtis and I, 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 I passed the test and I knew it was good. And I didn't understand it. I was playing Charney and Liszt and Rachmaninoff and Bach. And I knew it was good. And uh, but I, and we made records, but I, I didn't understand why I didn't get that scholarship for 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 for, for, for anything. And um, there were people around me who knew about my talent as well, and they said, "Nina, it's because you are black." And I I that shocked me. And also, she was a huge campaigner for civil rights. It was a big part of her life, partly obviously because of the injustice she had faced, but also the injustice she saw around her. Um, so her music is incredibly inspirational to me. I remember when she died, it was... I cried. I don't really <laughs> cry very easily, but it was one of the saddest days. OK, that's all. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, a, it's an unusual setup, but it was just an I experiment. Like it. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. clever. It's fun. It's fun. That was recorded at our fifth birthday of Inspire Fist in Dublin. We'll be back next year with a new and improved event on May 21st and 22nd. Tickets are still available and we wanted to offer a little discount code to our listeners. So simply go to inspirefest.com, click on buy tickets and enter the promo code HUMANS2020. That's a promo code of HUMANS2020. Thanks to all our speakers who took part in Real Humans and to our ACE team of producers at Bureau. For more about Bureau, you can go to akabureau.com. Thanks for listening.